If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The way that this surfaces, this medievalism and this appropriation of the past uh, by white supremacists in events like the Christchurch New Zealand shootings is just a, a manifestation of a much larger phenomenon that uh, you can see going on online, which is this large-scale appropriation of the Middle Ages. That was Nicholas Paul on the way in which the Crusades and the Middle Ages more generally have been adopted by extremist groups. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today's interview is with Nicholas Paul who's Associate Professor of History at Fordham University and an expert on the Crusades. On a recent visit to the UK, he popped into our studio to discuss his research and how this aspect of history may have influenced some modern extremist groups. Putting the questions to him was our world history editor, Matt Elton. Could we start by just briefly outlining sort of period that you're interested in and your take on it, I suppose? Sure. So I study the Central Middle Ages, which is roughly the period from 1000 to 1300. And my areas of interest are uh, the Crusades, um, the uh, medieval aristocracy, and uh, social memory, essentially are the three areas that have interested me the most. So the reason I'm interested in those, those things is because I um, was trying to figure out what drove the crusade movement. So what, what led people to engage in this holy war over the period, over such a long period of time, over the period of centuries. Um, and in fact, one of the things that was uh, had been observed by historians before I, I came along was that there were 
traditions, patterns of behavior, patterns of involvement among certain families over time. Um, so I, I got interested in trying to figure out what was what was driving this forward and specifically what kinds of stories or memories were being passed down from one generation to another that led these particular families to engage in this warfare over such a long period of time. It was very uh, dangerous and extremely costly and resulted in um, uh, a lot of loss and death for these families. So I wanted to figure out what was continued to motivate them. There's obviously a whole lot of stuff going on yeah, there. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose, first of all, for people who might not be entirely familiar, what do we talk about when we talk about the Crusades? All right. So the Crusades, as traditionally understood, are a series of Christian holy wars that were uh, first launched in 1095 by Pope Urban II uh, at the Council of Clermont in southern France. And um, they uh, consisted of a, a, a sequence of conflicts uh, that took place, first of all, uh, in the Near East, in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Near Eastern region, but uh, that ultimately came to encompass uh, the Baltic, uh, Spain, and wars that happened inside of Europe against enemies of the papacy. And those conflicts lasted for hundreds of years. Um, they can be seen, the echoes of them can con continue to be seen uh, well into the early modern and even the modern period. Um, and what would you say was the aim of those crusades? Well, uh, according to one interpretation, the aim of the crusades would be fixed upon the city of Jerusalem and the possession of Jerusalem and the places holiest to uh, Christian European Christians. Um, uh, however, another interpretation of the Crusades would say that the uh, the aim of the Crusade was very much linked to what it did for those who took part in it. That is to say that it was a, a quest for salvation for the individuals that took part. So a particular Crusade could have many different aims, uh, but uh, what united all of them uh, was the sense that the participants in the in these wars were seeking salvation. So it was it was as much about the personal as it was the political, if you if you like. Yes, it was a deeply personal experience, and that's something that people don't understand very much today. I think you, you uh, spoke there about particular families being involved in this. Who were the main sort of players in this story in terms of of that kind of dynasty, or kind of I suppose more individual people? There were so many. I mean, this is a phenomenon that encompassed a very large number of people uh, over across uh, all of Latin Christendom. That is to say, everything from Poland in the east to Ireland to Catalonia um, and Scandinavia. So it's really a very large number of people. And, and within that territory, you could point to dozens of uh, dynasties, uh, princely and royal dynasties that were involved over time, including the kingdoms of England and France. Uh, but also uh, you could point to um, myriad local uh, families, knightly and lordly families who also participated over long periods of time. And this spanned hundreds of years, so it was a major undertaking. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess one of the, the things I wanted to point out in my, my, my new scholarship is that when we think about the Crusades, we often think about these large military expeditions, um, uh, sometimes under the leadership of a monarch, uh, but those large-scale expeditions that we we give canonical numbers to, the First Crusade, the Second Crusade, the Third Crusade, etc., those only happened once every 40 to 50 years. So um, they were relatively infrequent, if you want to think about it in that, in that sense. Um, and they were, after the First Crusade, they were pretty much universally 
uh, a disaster. Uh, there were there were uh, some of them that would claim some kind of uh, victory, uh, but but none of them uh, achieved the ends that the first crusade had had had, had achieved in conquering Jerusalem in 1099. How how were these crusades remembered then, both in terms of the people embarking on them and those people who suffered as a result? I suppose. Ah, uh, so um, that's a really interesting question. So the so that you have, uh, as you say, memory uh, is is social. It has to do with societies. It has to do with communities. That's what builds memory up. Um, and so how something is remembered depends very much on obviously the perspective that is taken and the nature of the community itself. So. Within uh, European noble families, crusades were remembered as places of distinction, as places where members of their families had earned distinction. Um, and they were often included uh, very prominently in a family's history, uh, in representations of their own past and who they were as to, to build themselves up. Um, given the distance uh, that were involved in crusading, um, the loss of uh, information was was very very critical. A person, if a person went missing, uh, it was impossible to know what had happened to them, and as a result, uh, various aspects of their system at home would break down. Um, now, you asked about the communities that were on the receiving end of crusading conflicts, crusading wars. Um, and uh, yes, indeed, they had their own very different ways of understanding what was happening and also commemorating what was happening. So what we find in the Islamic world, for instance, uh, is that there is uh, it takes quite some time for the for the Islamic world in the Near East to understand the nature of uh, what is what is happening, what the what it is that Latin Christian Europeans want, um, and to uh, and to try and piece together some some. Um, uh, uh, some um, understanding of that. One thing we could point to would be to say that in the uh, Islamic Near East, there was an understanding of the Crusades as being part of a much larger program by uh, Latin Christian Europeans to take over the whole world. So they connected what was happening in the Middle East with things that were happening in Sicily, things that were happening in Spain, etc. Um, uh, another group we could we could look at would be the Jewish communities of Middle Europe, who were also uh, tremendously adversely affected by crusading. They uh, each each crusade that was proclaimed was followed by. Uh, massacres of Jewish communities uh, to various degrees in different places. And that meant that Jewish communities had their own uh, commemoration of these tragic events of the Crusades. So um, by the time uh, that the Second Crusade uh, was being declared uh, and there were uh, once again pogroms of Jewish communities in uh, in, in Europe, uh, those Jewish communities could turn to accounts of the pogroms that had occurred at the time of the First Crusade and actually reflected upon those and their own uh, experiences based on what had happened at the time of the First Crusade. Do you think that we have a holistic enough view of the Crusades and how it affected all these communities? And what sources can we use to help gain that view, I suppose? I would say we don't have a very good view of the holistic nature of the Crusades. I think that within popular perception, it's easy to link Crusades to a series of um, spectacular encounters 
um, particularly between sort of well-known heroic individuals like Richard the Lionheart and Saladin, um, which reduces the Crusades as a phenomenon to a very specific uh, set of events uh, and, a, and a, it limits them uh, quite dramatically. Um, in order to understand the fullness of, of the Crusades, it's necessary to turn to a wide variety of different kinds of accounts, um, which aren't often made abundantly available. So uh, I would say I don't think there are very good, except for reading a great history of the Crusades, of which there are many uh, wonderful histories of the Crusades that are around today. Um, uh, uh, the, the medieval sources themselves don't, don't suggest uh, uh, the totality of the experience very well. Something that interested me about your uh, research is it focuses on a specific sort of geographic area. Is that right? So we're talking about frontier areas. Can you explain a bit about what those were and where those are, I guess? So there were uh, crusading frontiers, or if you wanted to say, you know, the role of the crusades in establishing the frontiers and expanding the frontiers of Latin Christian Europe. Um, uh, the Crusades uh, conquered territory in the Eastern Mediterranean, which includes a, a really kind of vast swathe of territory that would encompass parts of modern day uh, Israel, Palestine, Syria, Jordan, um, uh, Turkey and Greece and Cyprus. Uh, but they also were responsible for a lot of the conquests of territory that were happening in the Iberian Peninsula, in Spain. Um, the city of Lisbon in Portugal was conquered as a result of uh, the Second Crusade. And also um, the conquest and conversion and Christianization of the entire Baltic region. So all of those could be considered crusading frontiers. What I'm doing at the moment is I'm looking at the, uh, the crusading frontier that was established in the Eastern Mediterranean. And this is an area that uh, is known by many names. So uh, some people today call it the Latin East or the Frankish Levant or the Crusader States. In the Middle Ages, it was called La Terre d'Outremer, the land over the sea. And this uh, area, which was conquered by the First Crusade and expanded in subsequent Crusades, was a, uh, it was a series, a sequence of, of Latin Christian principalities, um, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the Principality of Antioch, the County of Tripoli, the County of Edessa, um, which survived more or less, uh, uh, the, the, those territories on the mainland in the, in the Near East, survived more or less for 200 years. And uh, during that time, those places uh, were the focus of the majority of crusading efforts to prop them up, to expand them. Uh, crusades were launched throughout the 12th and 13th centuries and directed at those territories. Now, in my research, part of what I want to do is try and draw attention to the fact that these larger canonically numbered crusade expeditions, the second, the third, the fourth, etc., those were, as I said, very infrequent and they were, uh, they were not very successful, and they were not the normative experience of crusading from most uh, crusaders. So because between these expeditions, which could be a period of you know, 40 or 50 years in between each of these expeditions, um, there were countless individuals setting out for that frontier. Uh, we have traditionally ignored those people who go out between the major crusade expeditions. We sometimes look at them and say, oh, they're just a pilgrim on a pilgrimage, or they're just a diplomat going for a diplomatic visit, or they're there for some kind of marriage negotiation or something like that. Um, but when you look at the, uh, at the whole series of them together, which is something we are doing um, uh, together in a project together with a scholar named James Doherty, uh, who was uh, based at the University of Bristol when we started this project. He's now at the University 
University of Leeds, um, we're collecting together the names of all of these what we call independent crusaders. And when you do that, you realize that the crusading experience was much more aligned with what they were doing. And what they were doing was uh, something very different than ha what happened on these large-scale uh, military expeditions. It consisted of, in part, pilgrimage. So these, these journeys would result in someone uh, go visiting the Holy Sepulcher uh, to pray and to make gifts. But it also involved a whole range of other activities, including visits to the courts of the East, uh, feasting, uh, courtly activities, uh, um, and a little bit of fighting, but fighting was not in any sense the, the main uh, event, and sometimes it never happened on these expeditions. And when we look at the culture of this Eastern Crusading frontier, we can see, in some sense, a, a place that was set up to host these individuals from the West and impress them with architecture, with uh, courtly display, and even with things like tournaments, which were happening out there on the Eastern Crusading frontier uh, extensively, uh, and hunting. So some of the Arabic sources that we look at to tell us about what was happening on this Eastern Crusading frontier, uh, such as the chronicle of uh, Usamba ibn Munkid, um, they talk a lot about crusaders being interested in hunting, uh, hunting the what to them is exotic wildlife that, hap that, uh, that lives out there, including, for instance, lions. Uh, and if we then look at the Western sources, you can see a tremendous preoccupation with this idea of lion hunting on the crusading frontier. So when you look at all of this, what, it, what suddenly emerges is something that looks less like what we traditionally call crusading, this sort of civilizational conflict, uh, all or nothing war, and more like uh, a colonial safari uh, of the modern period or the grand tour, uh, something like that. That's a really interesting idea, isn't it? Because would you say then that what we're describing here is more equivalent to tourism or colonialism or are those comparisons unhelpful? I think the comparisons are helpful. I think the comparisons are very helpful. I wouldn't go so far as to say that that's what this is. Um, uh, this is in no sense a, uh, crusading is in no sense a uh, practice run for later colonial or imperial projects of the 19th century. But I think that when we think about what the way that elite cultures behave and the things that they're interested in, they're very interested in enhancing their own status. That is almost the most important thing for elites. Uh, and so in this case, we're just looking at a medieval aristocracy who want to enhance their own status, and they do it in ways that are familiar to them. That is by uh, engaging in courtly activities, feasting, gift giving, um, seeing and being seen and recognized, um, doing a little bit of fighting, a controlled, safe amount of fighting, <laughs> unlike these larger expeditions, which are not safe, uh, and also uh, engaging in things like uh, hunting activities and tournaments and things like that. So I, 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 my, my project is really to, to point out the degree to which this Eastern Crusading Frontier acts as a kind of stage or theater of uh, Western aristocracy in the High Middle Ages. So in a way, it's about performing aristocracy on a larger canvas. Can we put it like that? Absolutely. In a larger canvas, that's it's it's in many ways familiar. Uh, uh, it would be in many ways familiar to the aristocracy from what they saw at home. Uh, it was entirely French speaking. It still operated on a kind of feudal, feudal principles, recognizable feudal principles. Um, but on the other hand, there was something different. There were, there were elements of it that were exotic. And that included the flora and fauna. It included the 
uh, very charged, sacred nature of the topography that was there with uh, because of the, the Holy Land, the Holy Places. Um, but it also was different because of the social structure of this Eastern world. Um, it was a place that was governed uh, by women for large periods of time. And I think that was something that also fascinated the Western aristocracy, uh, especially the, the men um, who went out there uh, and found themselves in courts ruled by women, in the service of women. It resembled in many ways something out of a romance. Uh, this 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 land. Do we get a sense of how much the communities that were caught up in these performances were aware that they were being performed with, and were they part of that? Yeah. So I I think we can see in some aspects of the way this Eastern world is set up, it is deliberately being uh, 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 set up to host these Western visitors. So if we look at the um, the architecture, for instance, from about the middle of the 12th century, the Kingdom of Jerusalem seems to be very invested in building itself up architecturally as a place that can host visitors. Uh, they have special uh, audience chambers and things like that built into the royal palace in Jerusalem. Um, and uh, uh, simply the, the the holding of these tournaments at which uh, foreign dignitaries are invited to take part in are clearly impressive to those foreigners. That all seems to be oriented toward uh, the uh, t- toward the visitor. Yeah, we've talked a bit about um, sources. There's a particular source that you've used in this research project, I think, which sounds quite interesting. Which is a map. Is that right? Yes. Well, the map is something that we came upon uh, in, in larger projects that we're doing uh, at Fordham University. Uh, we are we were compiling all kinds of different sources that uh, spoke to the uh, culture and society of this eastern frontier. And one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Laura Morreale, who uh, was in the inspiration of many of many aspects of these these projects, especially the digital projects, she said to me, "You know, we do all of this online, these digital projects, but we don't have anything visual. We need a map." She said, and I said, "Well, I said, don't that, that just forget it because there are no maps, you know, that have anything to do with this. There are maps of the Holy Land, but they're very devotional, and they don't really, they don't really, they're not involved in all of this." And so I, uh, and so I thought this this was not, you know, not possible. But then one day in a class, we noticed uh, a drawing in one of the books that we were reading um, that was credited as a, a, a 19th century drawing of an earlier map. And I was curious because the, the the drawing seemed to be a fairly decent representation of the Eastern uh, Crusading frontier. So I found that the source for this drawing was a map in Corpus Christi College, Oxford, manuscript number two. Um, and the reason why we were looking at a drawing and not the map itself is because the map is in terrible condition. It was drawn on the back of a painting and the paint had bled through the map and the, the metal uh, from the other side had, had bled through. And as a result, it was very, very hard to read. It had been written over. But we took this map and students working in our Center for Medieval Studies uh, began digitally restoring it, essentially enhancing uh, the, the, the colors and the pigments that had originally been put in the, in, the, in the drawing and trying to take out the ones that had bled through. The result is an extremely clear picture of this map, which now comes to life. And the map is extraordinary. It is oriented exactly as a modern map would be, so north is at the top. Um, it is a fairly uh, uh, accurate representation of the eastern Mediterranean coastline and the and the hinterland, and it marks out all kinds of interesting things. It marks out fortifications, um, uh, uh, prominent cities, uh, uh, geographical features, things like that, and it really changed the way 
I thought uh, uh, I understood medieval Europeans could think about this space. Um, they clearly had a very clear idea of what this world looked like, and were very interested in it. It's again, its flora and fauna are described. So places where there are forests, places where there are rivers, places where there are lions <laughs> are all marked out on the map. Um, places where there are falcons for falconry. Um, all of that is all of that is actually described on the map. So uh, that was very exciting for us to be able to have this, and we tried to make that available online. Do we get a sense of who produced it and, and when? We actually, we think we know exactly who produced it. So uh, the map uh, has had previously, it had already previously been identified as the work of the monk Matthew Paris of the Abbey of St. Albans. Um, and it, uh, it, it, it does seem to be his hand who's drawing the map. A larger question hangs over whether he is the person who's, who, that he envisioned this map. So is this his own production or is he copying something that he'd seen? We don't understand, for instance, why did he draw this on the back of a painting? Uh, that seems quite odd. <laughs> and we don't understand why this map sort of had such a strange afterlife. Um, it's possible, some people have posited that, that he was doing it in a great hurry as if he saw this map somewhere and had to had to draw it as quick as quickly as he could before the original example was taken away uh, one uh, uh, hypothesis that I am kind of curious about is that um, uh, uh, Richard uh, the uh, uh, Richard of Cornwall uh, who was on crusade who was departing on crusade in 1239 he actually visited the Abbey of St Albans the night before his departure and Matthew Paris says that they talked uh, before his departure, uh, uh, about you know what was coming, what was coming up, and I I've always wondered whether this was a map that Richard of Cornwall or perhaps one of the Templars or something with him had in their possession, and Matthew Paris, Paris saw it and said, "I've got to have that. I've got to copy that down." <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> so this period of history, and I suppose its iconography, is something that's been in the headlines a bit recently because of the shootings in New Zealand. Um, is that part of a trend? Do you think towards extremists? referring to this period as part of their, their campaigns, if you want to put it like that. Absolutely. Um, uh, I'm afraid the, the, the unfortunate fact is that um, the, the way that this surfaces, this medievalism um, and this appropriation of the past uh, by white supremacists uh, in, in events like the Christchurch New Zealand shootings, is just a, a manifestation uh, of a much larger phenomenon that uh, you can see online, going on online, um, which is this uh, sort of large-scale appropriation of the Middle Ages um, by uh, white supremacist movements and far-right movements um, uh, uh, to legitimize, essentially, their own positions uh, with regard to what are contemporary issues like immigration. Um, so it's a way of giving their, their terrorism a sort of a a sheen of false respectability or false grounded in being sort of in, in facts in some way. Yes, that's right. Uh, I think that there's an attempt to uh, create a kind of false continuity with the past and uh, to associate what they're doing with what they think of as being some sort of grandiose uh, narrative, uh, which will grant some kind of legitimacy uh, to their, their ideas and their actions. Which is a, another reason why it's all the more important now for us to have a kind of true understanding of this period and how we should understand it. How would you like your research to change people's impressions of this whole sort of story? Well, on the one hand, I think it's also really important to say that 
um, the reaction of historians should not be to try to rescue their subject uh, from uh, so these kinds of claims. Um, our object here is not somehow to uh, protect uh, the past from uh, 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 being slandered or something like that. Um, it's only and can only really be to confront this appropriation with uh, uh, our understanding of uh, of the past, which is very different and not connected to uh, the uh, priorities of these far-right uh, white supremacist movements. I think in my own research, uh, one of the things I'm really trying to do at the moment is I'm trying to break down the narrative of the Crusades as some sort of great civilizational conflict, a clash of civilizations, which is the way crusading is so often represented. Um, and trying to return it to its original context, which is in part uh, the devotional lives of individuals uh, who are concerned about the implications of their sinful lives and ways of uh, uh, ways of mitigating that uh, that those concerns, um, but also looking at the actual phenomenon of crusading to put it back into the. Uh, much more uh, complex and much richer, frankly, picture that we get from our 12th and 13th century sources. Uh, so crusades were you know, not a war explicitly between Christians and Muslims, for instance. Um, uh, if you try and define a crusade, you wind up with a definition that cannot possibly have one target or one enemy group. Um, the objective of crusading really resides within the individual who is undertaking the crusade. Targets of crusading were not uh, just Muslims uh, or uh, Jews or pagans, but in fact anyone who is deemed as an enemy of the Roman church. And I think that that definition of crusading doesn't really comport very well with what uh, modern far-right groups want it to be. They want it to be a war against Islam, and they want it to be a, a defensive war against Islam. Uh, and they, they want to see that as being a legitimate interpretation of the Crusades, uh, but it's not. It's also the case that um, attitudes toward race and difference in the Middle Ages were not the same as the ones we have today. So crusading armies, for instance, fought side by side with Arab Christians, with uh, Arab Muslims on occasion with Mongols who were who were uh, you know animists. <laughs> so um, there was uh, there was none of this sense of a great racial divide that I think the white supremacists want us to want us to think. That was Nicholas Paul. You can find out about his latest research project online, and we've included a link in the podcast text. And for more global history do check out BBC World Histories magazine, which is on sale every two months and can be found in all good retailers or ordered directly from us at buysubscriptions.com. Now, before we go, I'd like to give a shout-out to our friends at BBC Science Focus magazine, whose latest podcast episode features a fascinating interview with Sir David Attenborough on the subject of climate change. It's available now through all major podcast providers and via sciencefocus.com. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will return on Monday to discuss the citizen armies of World War II. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, 
Don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 